Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. On this week's episode, Reagan Institute Policy Director Rachel Hoff hosts best-selling author Gail Zamak-Lamon. Gail is an adjunct senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and has several private sector leadership roles in emerging technology and national security firms. She's the author of three books, all focused on women in combat or women in battleground situations. Rachel and Gail discuss her most recent book, The Daughters of Kobani, which tells the story of an all-women militia who faced off against ISIS. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Reaganism. I am your guest host, Rachel Hoff, and with us today is the brilliant and indefatigable Gail Zamak-Laman. Um, Gail, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Your new book came out just last month, Daughters of Kobani, right here on my desk. Um, a story of rebellion, courage, and justice. It, it tells a story of a really inspiring group of um, an all-female unit of um, women fighters in Syria taking on the fight uh, against ISIS. You spend quite a bit of time on the ground in Northern Syria and Iraq researching this book and conducting uh, what I imagine was, was uh, a whole host of interviews for the book. It's really beautifully written. And I must say, as you know, I'm an audiobook uh, fan myself, and it's it's a very beautifully read book as well. Thank you so much. And I, I want all of you uh, who might be listening wherever you are to know that Rachel was a big part of why I read the audiobook myself. I mean, it's really important when you spend time with the book that you feel like the person who is sharing it with you is coming from, from a real place and from an authentic place. And uh, a lot of readers told me, including very <laughs> wise Rachel here, that it would mean a lot for folks to hear it from me. And honestly, I loved doing it. It was an amazing experience to sit in a studio for three days and read it. Well, it was certainly certainly an amazing experience to, to listen to that. And I think, I think especially when you're giving voice to the stories of so many women um, on the ground in Syria, to, to hear it in your voice is, is particularly impactful. So, so to start our conversation today, maybe just start by telling us who are the Daughters of Kobani and, and what is their, their story? So the book, The Daughters of Kobani, really is about uh, an all-women unit that had been really the world's greatest hope for stopping the Islamic State. This was part of the fighting force that becomes America's partner in the house-by-house, town-by-town, street-by-street battle to stop ISIS's ability to hold terrain. And it really is in 2014. I mean, I, I know many of you will remember this. ISIS was deeply scary for the United States. The question was, who was going to fight them? Who was going to be the ground force who would take the battle to ISIS and was willing to lose its young people in that fight? And in September 2014 comes this David versus Goliath showdown that the world watches play out in real time on CNN and Fox and all kinds of other outlets, YouTube, Facebook, uh, all of the above. And David also happens to be, in this case, a woman, right? They, they are 
standing up to ISIS at a time when ISIS has not had one battlefield defeat. And the title, The Daughters of Kobani, is really about a group of frontline commanders who are women who go on from Kobani to become America's partner in the years long battle to take all the terrain back that ISIS held and to create for, for you and for me, a world in which ISIS no longer was able to have a physical so-called caliphate. That's right. So, so Kobani ends up being really the first battlefield defeat that, that ISIS has dealt um, by these women in large part. And, um, and that really paves the way for, for all of the, uh, the defeat of ISIS in the region to, to their, their, their capital in Raqqa and the, um, you know, the, really the um, destroying of the, of the caliphate, the perceived That's right. caliphate. That's right. And, and without Kobani, there would not have been a Raqqa, right? And the Americans, we, the book really takes you into the moment when the Americans are watching, you know, is this kind of ragtag force we haven't really heard of mm -hmm. that's bringing the fight to ISIS? You know, is this somebody we could maybe work with? Do they need our help? And, and we watch in real time as the U.S. decides to get in from the air to support these people who really, we, we go into a moment when Rojda, one of the women we spend time with in the book, puts her AK-47 through the wall and brushes right up against the leg of an ISIS fighter. I mean, that's really the kind of battle they were doing at the time. Yeah, you, you profile so many amazing and heroic women in the book, Rosha is one of them. Uh, but I'm, I must say that I was particularly inspired by the story of Znareen. She, I thought, had had such an arc that, that you told, um, not just, I mean, to her life uh, in general, her young life, but also um, in her time as a fighter, going from sort of a, a military assistant to a commander than to, to leading on the battlefield herself. Tell us, tell us about her and, and her story. Znareen is one of the women you meet in, in the Daughters of Kobani. And I have to say, her story is, is just so moving and so many readers already written me about her. And that, that also means a great deal. We meet her right after she has really faced a number of disappointments and setbacks like we all do in life. But hers, I think, were particularly poignant. You know, she wants to go to university. Her uncle tells her father, that's not what women in our family do. She wants to marry a man she loves several years later. And her uncle, again, tells her father, no, I've actually chosen a husband already for her. And, and, and here he is. And she says, no, I'm not going to follow the rules this time that other people have laid out for me. And I'm never going to get married if I can't marry the person I love. And several years later, she gets a knock on the door and this group of women practicing a, a brand of politics that follows Abdullah Ocalan, who's sitting in prison in Turkey, really knocks on her door and says, we're practicing this kind of form of women's equality and a politics that's focused on it. Would you want to join? And she says, yes, right? And, and we follow her from that journey to becoming a driver and a, an assistant, right? A military aide to Nauruz, the head of the women's protection units in the fight for Kobani that gets swept onto the global platform because this is at a time when the world needs ISIS to lose. And this group of fighters, which includes women right at the heart of it, is the one who is standing up in this very unlikely turn of events. And she goes from being a driver and we watch her as they're low on weapons, low on ammunition, low on food, all the way to leading the liberation of her hometown from the Islamic State and having girls come up to her and, and look to her as a role model and, and really becoming one of America's partners and their interlocutors in the fight to stop ISIS and to retake the, the capital, uh, so-called capital of Raqqa. You, when you tell her story, you, you talked a bit about 
um, kind of the some of the political ideology that un underlies um, the actual crusade for for women's rights in in this in this region. And I think some of our listeners might be surprised to learn that here in the middle of the Middle East, um, there's maybe an unlikely um, you know group of people who who really are championing women's rights. Uh, as central to broader political freedom. Tell us a little bit about who the Kurds are, um, how, how that came to be uh, uh, in terms of their support for, for women's equality, um, including on the battlefield, but certainly not, not limited to that realm, and kind of how they fit into the broader situation in Syria and, and what we know about the region. That's right. So the Kurds are an ethnic minority across four countries that has no state, and largest ethnic minority without a state. And we in this book really spend time with this group of Syrian Kurds who follows Abdullah Ocalan, who is sitting in prison in Turkey, who is reading ideology of uh, Murray Bookchin from Vermont, from New York, then, then in Vermont, that talks about grassroots participatory democracy, New England style, right, with the notion of women's equality right at the heart of it. And for this group of Kurds, the idea of self-governance and the hunt for dignity is really at the center of their quest for self-rule. What they're seeking is for the first time to take advantage in many ways or to seize the moment of chaos that the Syrian civil war presents to govern themselves, right? To be able to name their children what they would wish, to celebrate their holidays as they would wish, to practice you know, faith or, or to not practice faith as they would wish, and to create a multi-ethnic, multi-faith community, right? That is founded upon this principle that the Kurds cannot be free until women are free. And it is the chaos of the Syrian civil war and that moment of upheaval that allows this group of Syrian Kurds to really come in and offer uh, security and then set up a governance structure. That is the first time in Syria that anything like this has been attempted. And there's a moment in the book where actually there's an older man who walks through the checkpoint several times because he's never heard Kurdish. He's never heard his own language spoken at a checkpoint. And I think, you know, many uh, your, your listeners will, will, I think, really understand this kind of hunt for freedom and dignity that I think was so central to this question of Kurdish self-rule uh, in northeastern Syria. Mm -hmm. This isn't your first book uh, about this region or about women in this region. Uh, in fact, your your last book, book was also focused on a, a group of, of female fighters, um, but they were American women soldiers um, and who were on special operations teams in Afghanistan. And you actually learned of the story of the of the daughters of Kobani and this this Kurdish female fighting force from one of the women that that you featured in in Ashley's War, um, your your last book. Tell us about the experience of, of, you know, kind of as you've outlined the experience of Kurdish female fighters, yes. compare and contrast it with the experience of, of American female fighters and, um, you know, what their experience is in their, in their respective fighting forces. So interesting. So, so the Daughters of Kobani opens with, with Cassie, one of the women soldiers who was part of Ashley's war and uh, part of the special operations team who's then deployed to Syria. And she called me and she said, you have to come to Syria. You have to see what's happening on the ground. There are women who are fighting ISIS and they're not just leading men in battle from their own community, but they're also fighting for women's equality. And she said, and also incredibly noteworthy is the fact that they have the deep respect of the men of US special operations. And at this point, you're talking about 
very elite fighter soldiers who had deployed 13, 14, 15 times in the post 9-11 conflicts at their country's behest. And she said, and it is remarkable because they have true respect for the warriors that these women are. And she said, you know, and I'm kind of jealous of them because there are no restrictions. And, you know, the thing was by 2016, all roles had opened up to women in the United States military, but not all roles had seen women enter them yet. Mm-hmm. And I think right now we are really living that history of Americans who are meeting the test that their country has put in place for them in order to serve their nation uh, to their utmost. And, and it was really fascinating to see that interaction. And there's a moment in the Daughters of Kobani where um, one of the US special operations soldiers is watching this flatbed truck of you know, 35, 20, 30, 35 young women all hugging each other and high-fiving each other and getting ready to go off to battle against ISIS in the town of Shadadi. And he has this mix of kind of envy that they're going to the front line and he can't because US policy says at that point, no US boots on the front line. Uh, I think guilt that he who has been trained as a fighter won't be able to be with them and potentially save some of their lives and and help. And I think real deep awe and respect for them as as warriors. And he said, you know, I just had a flashback to the the MacArthur speech at West Point, duty, honor, country. Hmm. Yeah, I have to think there's probably nothing like uh, courage in battle to really kind of serve as an equalizing force between men and women. And, And I suppose I'm not surprised to hear that that in terms of, you know, kind of the perception by male counterparts or, or even their American partners, um, you know, in terms of American special operators who are there supporting um, these, these units or, or even, like you said, the, the not only Kurdish, but Arab men under their, under their command yeah. um, that, that the courage that these women showed really, really inspired confidence in their leadership. You said at, at one point in the book that, that you had never witnessed women kind of who, who, who inspired that much confidence. And I don't know, I suppose, knowing that you're an American, I'd like to think that, that here in the U S we would have some, some shining examples of, of that ourselves. What, what was it in a unique way about these women that, that really kind of came across to you in, in that way? Yes. And I really do mean this nowhere. Have I seen women more comfortable with power? Mm and less apologetic about exercising it. And Rachel, that is what looks different. Hmm. I think there are three reasons why. I've really been thinking a lot about this uh, of late. One is that I think the battlefield is a leveler. Once you've tested yourself in that kind of fight, there is no going back. And I think your sense of being able to handle whatever comes and not needing to prove yourself yet again and yet again and yet again because the world knows what you have done is, is one. I think secondly is, is the ideology, right? The ideology that they follow, John's are saying that the Kurds cannot be free until women are free, which gives them. And then the third piece is I think having won. You know, I mean, the battlefield is not ended. It is much easier to kill a terrorist than to slay an ideology. So I don't think you can argue that the fight against ISIS has finished, but that they were able to be a central part of defeating a fighting force that had the buying and selling of women at its core, I think does give them the sense of whatever comes next, we have done this. Yeah. 
I have no doubt that that um, you know I, I can tell from from your telling of their stories that these women are are incredibly confident and unapologetic in in their leadership. Um, but there was a moment in Zanarin's story, who we were talking about earlier, when she is elevated to to leadership on the battlefield, where she does have some doubt. Maybe it's Absolutely. too soon. Maybe I'm not ready. Yeah. You know, yep. is I we I hear a lot about imposter syndrome for <laughs> for women in 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 you know contemporary America. Is there is there still something there even for for people who have shown such such you know courage on the battlefield? I, I want to be really clear. I, these are not superheroes, and I think so many times we think women who do exceptional things must be the exception, mm. and that is not the case. And it is definitely not the case here. These are very ordinary people. I mean, that's why I wanted to take you into their worlds of people who were going to be pharmacists or doctors, uh, maybe lawyers, because they argued with their family so much. Their families would joke they should be lawyers. Um, but they were put into extraordinary circumstances when facing an existential threat. And when faced with a threat that was menacing the United States, Europe, the region, and I think they looked inside themselves and found something that I think we all face, right, in, in moments of trial. And we all have people in our community, women in our community, who when things are going topsy-turvy, they band together and say, you know what, we're going to get together and we're going to make a stand mm -hmm. because principles really matter. Mm -hmm. And I wanted people to really understand the humanity amid the inhumanity of war, that these are sisters and daughters and friends in addition to being fighters. Mm -hmm. Well, as you as you have have this book behind you and, and think back to your previous book, Ashley's War, about the, the American women in combat, what le you know, what what lessons or takeaways are there for the American military in terms of how to, you know, it's not even it's not I don't think it's even, you know, ensure better equality for women, but better take take advantage of, of what women have to offer for for the betterment of of our military strength and our national security. What, what can we learn from, from the story of, of Daughters of Kobani in that regard? Suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. This is the idea that has animated all the work I've had the opportunity of doing and the privilege of sharing. I never set out to write about women, Rachel. I never set out to tell women's stories. I don't even know what women's stories are. I know what great stories are that happen to have women playing a central role in them. And I know also that too rarely do we get to see them and hear them and know them. So to me, and, and this is why I'm so happy to be on this podcast in particular, is about the quest for dignity. The individual quest to realize your own potential and to move the barriers out of your way that are really standing between you and what you know you can achieve. And that, at the end of the day, is the lesson of, of Ashley's War, of Dressmaker of Karkana, of Daughters of Kobani. We have no talent to waste if we want a world that is more secure, more stable, more prosperous for more people. And it's up to us to figure out how to get the most of the people that we have, whose God-given abilities uh, are in this world. Well, as you say, that belief in human dignity and, and kind of the, the inherent value of each, each person and, and what they have to contribute is certainly at the heart of President Reagan's legacy and, and we hope the enduring uh, legacy of Reaganism in, in today's world. Um, you mentioned Dressmaker there, your first book. 
um, about um, women in Afghanistan. Um, I'd love to kind of shift gears and talk about the broader context. We've talked, you know, about Syria, about the ISIS fight. You've written also about, about, uh, about Afghanistan and our efforts there. The Reagan Institute recently commissioned a, a national public opinion poll to, to survey Americans' attitudes on a variety of, of defense and, and foreign policy issues. And one of the key findings is that um, a whole lot more Americans believe that our efforts, our war, the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq um, have been a failure uh, than believe it had, has been a success. And that's something that cut, cuts across um, a whole, most demographics and, and certainly party lines. Um, you haven't served in uniform, but you've had such a firsthand experience with the, the men and women who, who fought those wars and, uh, and the partners who, who helped the US um, fight those wars. So based on that kind of front row seat that you've had, what would you say to, to our fellow Americans who, who perceive those, those wars as failures? I'd say there are no greater fighters in the battle against extremism and the fight for dignity than the young people in Afghanistan I've had the privilege of knowing who go every single day up against the Taliban, up against the world's indifference, up against the challenges of their own governance structures to fight for something better. You know, three young women were killed recently, killed in March uh, for the crime of being journalists. And what you see happening now is a campaign to extinguish the brightest lights of the country one by one. And it's been going on for, I, I wrote about it for CNN in 2018, Rachel. That's how long this has been happening. And, and it's such a loss for all of us not to know incredible people like Kamala, the protagonist of The Dressmaker, right? Starts a business under the Taliban that manufactures hope at a time of economic collapse. Uh, of, of Wajma Fro, an activist who is you know, daring every day to try to advocate for women and their ability to have their own seat at the table in the quest to determine their country's future. Um, you know, there are so many people, journalists, teachers, midwives, politicians, right, who are just pushing against every obstacle. And we so rarely meet them because the narrative that all of these wars are simply a basket case that we should really no longer uh, contend with long ago hardened. I mean, probably 2008, 2009, 2010. I went back to look at a piece from 2012 that basically was you know, kind of giving the, the, the vice presidential debate a hard time because um, Paul Ryan had actually said the conditions on the ground should determine America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and Joe Biden was saying, no, no, we're going to be out by X state, right? And it's 2021 and we're still having this conversation because it is much easier to uh, think about getting out than to actually withdraw troops because of the vacuum you leave behind. And I know it's deeply unpopular to say that. I, I fully understand. You know, my, my godmother, my aunt say the same thing that a lot of people uh, who are listening probably feel, which is why, you know, why America? And I think the, my answer would be, there are a lot of warriors for a more just, secure, stable world you never meet that are doing much of the fighting and dying for their own country. And I wish more Americans knew them. Hmm. You're, in addition to highlighting some of those stories, your book covers, um, I think, quite concisely and masterfully, quite a bit of the kind of contemporary history 
particularly around um, not only the fight against ISIS in Syria, but, but the, the broader Syrian civil war. Um, President Biden, of course, recently ordered airstrikes targeting Iranian-backed fighters in Syria. Yes. Um, your book covers discussions in depth under both the Trump administration and the, and the Obama administrations about how involved the US should be in Syria, or in many cases, uh, how uninvolved it, it should be. What do you make of, in particular, American reluctance to, to be more involved in the, in the Syrian crisis? Uh, seven letters, Iraq war. The ghost of the Iraq war has hung over every single decision made on Syria across three administrations now. This is not a partisan issue, right? This is across the Obama administration, Trump administration, and now Biden. Um, the Obama administration was very clear. It felt very deeply. It had been elected to end wars in the Middle East, just as your poll was talking about, Rachel, right? Um, not begin them. And that's why the story of the Daughters of Kobani became really this hunt for the Goldilocks, right? The, a partner that would take the fight to ISIS that was tough enough and resolute enough to take terrain from the Islamic State and had the will to fight the Islamic State while stopping short of regime change, which while it was the official policy of the United States, uh, was not the goal of any administration because of the fear of what would come next and because of the ghost of Iraq. And I think right quite coming up quite soon in the Biden administration, which President Biden gave a very moving speech recently saying that the US was going to keep the pressure on the Islamic State and to, to, to bolster um, the support for Iraq and Iraq's uh, effort to keep extremism at bay and to really uh, keep its governance structures very firmly in place, uh, even in places that were being contested by ISIS. Um, and in the end, it's about America's national security. When we talk about the, the partner force on the ground in Syria, this is a force that lost more than 10 thousand people in the fight against the Islamic State. And every Gold Star family is a tragedy. I mean, we talked about this around Ashley's war. I, I have had the privilege of being deeply connected to that community. Every Gold Star family is a tragedy, but it is really important to note that the U.S. had fewer than 10 combat deaths in the push to uh, eliminate ISIS's territorial hold inside Syria and the partner force had 10,000. Part of the reluctance, you know, in, in the case of, of um, broader US foreign policy to, to get involved in Syria actually hinged around the Kurds themselves, right? They, they um, have quite a history and quite a political context in the region. And, and in many ways that um, kind of puts the United States in particular in, in a complicated situation in the case of as you outline in the book, even even supporting or or providing um, providing any kind of material support, let alone um, fighting support to to Kurdish militias, um, talk through that a little bit, and and also what you view maybe as kind of the the future for for the Kurds, not just in Syria but but in the region. So the the daughters of Kobani really takes readers into the policy tightrope that US folks, not just in Washington, but in Washington, in Iraq, in Syria, uh, on the diplomatic side and on the military side walked and continue until this day, Rachel, to walk. On the one hand, NATO ally Turkey, 
use this group of Syrian Kurds and particularly the US involvement with this group of Syrian Kurds as an existential threat. For the US side, for, for many folks within the diplomatic and military leadership structures, this group of Syrian Kurds is the best hope, if not the only hope that America had in the fight to stop the terrorists of the Islamic State. And we watch as it goes from 2014 to today, the trust built, the deep respect built, the fact that this group of Syrian Kurds took every objective that the Americans asked and then some. And I think that is why uh, you have seen this challenge of what has not yet been reconciled is, is this, this policy tightrope that continues to today. And at the end of the Daughters of Kobani, there's a beautifully written memo that, for those of you who want to really go, go into, into the deep end on this, that Ambassador Roebuck wrote about how the uh, working with the Americans in many ways inadvertently put a bullseye on the back of this group of Syrian Kurds, being the fighting force, the infantry in many ways for the US and the world to stop ISIS actually raised the threat uh, that this group of Syrian Kurds faced. And it will be for the Biden administration now to contend with this set of questions. Also, right, this partner that is still holding thousands of ISIS foreign fighters that no one else will take back. Their own countries won't take them. And they keep saying to the, to the Americans, the Europeans, like, who's going to, you know, are we going to hold them indefinitely for the world? You know, we already fought them. What would you, what else would you like? And, and, and so I think there are a number of open questions that will be confronting this current administration when it comes to keeping the pressure on extremism, never having to send large numbers of US forces, which because it is important to note, no large deployment of US forces to Syria ever happened. Right, and, and it's important, I think, to also for the Biden administration uh, as they contend with what comes next. Prognostication on, on US foreign policy <laughs> aside, what, um, what did the, the Kurdish people that you met in Northern Syria want for their future? I think the first thing was dignity. The second thing was, it was not ever about a nation state. I always thought the people were talking about that. Mm -hmm. I think hadn't had the privilege of spending enough time with the whole like, ideology that was actually shaping this governance structure that had women at its center, right? In every town they took from ISIS, there was a man and a woman co-head of the civil council put in place. There was a woman's council put in place. The founding document of this slice of Northeastern Syria, a document recognized by nobody outside of its uh, confines, um, has women mentioned 13 times. Yes to girls' education. Yes to women's economic rights. Yes to women's full political participation. No to child marriage. No to dowry. What they're trying to do is protect the self-rule, this autonomous region, this self-governance that they have put into place. I don't, you know, I never heard people talking about statehood. I heard people talking about self-governance of the kind of ideal of the kind of ideology that is. Uh, Murray Bookchin, plus Abdullah Ocalan, plus the realities on the ground in northeastern Syria. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the the governing document for for northern Syria, um, that was the point in the book where you talked about kind of the audacity of supporting women's rights in the middle of revolution, and kind of the 
what that represents in terms of, you know, why not wait until, until yes. after the revolution? Women why are not wait been told to wait, right? They are. It reminded me actually of Abigail Adams' uh, commendation to her husband during our revolution that, that he remember women's rights, um, which obviously took more than a century to, to secure since they did not. What, you know, are there, is there anything, you know, to, to say about that in terms of the- Fascinating. Yeah, that just in the middle of a moment like that to prioritize something like women's equality. So I had this very obtuse moment where I'm sitting in the office with Fauzi Yusuf for like the fifth time. And she, like all of the women fighters I interviewed, she's a political leader. And they all were so nice. And then they would say, are you done with this book? How many times are you going to come and interview me and ask me all these questions? Because book interviews are deeply tedious. I mean, that's three or four hours at the end of a very long day. Uh, you know, and, and you're going over the same things over and over. Anyway, so, so I, I said to her, I have to ask you, you are talking about ideas that would be far reaching in any political context. And here you're talking about Syria in the middle of civil war. And I said, didn't anybody tell you this is too much, too fast? And she looked at me and said, of course they told me that it was too much, too fast. Of course they told all of us, don't go so far. Don't ask for so much. Right. And actually, that's part of the epilogue of the daughters of Kobani. Women always being told, don't go too mm -hmm. far. Don't ask for too much. Right. You're going to upset the whole thing. And they were absolutely told that. And she said, but Gail, we are building a lake in the desert. It doesn't happen quickly and it doesn't happen overnight, but you have to start somewhere. And if we don't take our rights now, when will we take them? And that's actually why the military piece is central to the political piece. And as Nauru's the head of the Women's Protection Force says, if we showed we could, we could lead in battle, we could govern in peace. I want to talk more about your personal experience reporting on these stories and conducting these interviews, as you just mentioned um, before we close. You know, I think when we were talking earlier about US policy in the region and, and the perceived failure of our efforts there and, and these wars, there's such a disconnect between you know, the real life experience of the American people and, and, and the military, our military right now with less than 1% of Americans serving in the military. Yes. And, and you've had such a unique experience uh, being on the ground in these war zones, uh, reporting on the ground. Um, what? And often in, in very dangerous circumstances, you know, you were, I imagine, and, and, and I think you referenced in the book, you were, you know, having to wear body armor or, or bulletproof vests as, as you did a lot of this work. What motivates you to, to put yourself in harm's way to tell these stories? Uh, I, I want to be clear that uh, no amount of my courage comes anywhere close to a fraction of a sliver of what? the women who are part of the story, the men who are part of this story, show daily. And actually the, the prologue to Daughters of Kobani is us on the front lines of, uh, of the fight against ISIS in Raqqa, which was terrifying, right? And here's Clara, one of the women commanders, you know, we're all kitted up in, in our Kevlar and our vests. And, and she has literally a scarf on her head and she's just incensed because she's pointing at this still smoking car bomb that ISIS has targeted her forces with. And she's like, can you believe this, Gail? This is what they do every day. And I was like, oh yes, I can definitely believe it because it's still smoking, yeah. right? So, so they truly, this was their commute to work. 
this was their daily life for years. And I, I wanted readers so much yeah. to see the humanity and, you know, their moms calling in the middle of battle, their yeah. sisters calling. And as for me, why I do it, look, you know, I lost my mom when I was 13. I have, I think loss has been a central piece of so much of my life. And I think it really taught me that you must value every single day and you must do work you believe in so that no matter what, you have a body of work that is about something. And that's why I think this whole quest that you know you and I have been talking about, Rachel, for some time about human dignity mm -hmm. and the human spirit, uh, it's deeply important. Mm -hmm. We are all connected, whether we want to be or not. And so I don't take unnecessary risks. I know that might sound a little funny. Uh, just, by the way, I don't ski either. So if you want to ask about some risk that I don't take, I don't ski. I don't do any of that like adventure sports stuff. I don't look for uh, that kind of risk. I mean, um, during, during normal times, I ride my bike through downtown Washington to work every day. So talk about, talk about risky. I, I definitely don't do that. No. And definitely as a PG County person who originally, no, I definitely don't do that. I don't trust any of those Virginia drivers either. Um, but, uh, I do think in the end, it's about doing work that counts and making the most of the time we have. You, um, you mentioned your, your mother. Um, you talk about your father in the book yes, as well. I do. Who, My first who, time actually I'd ever talked about him in a book. Yeah. So he, he has a, a family lineage in, in the Kurdish regions of, of Iraq. Um, and it is a, a refugee or an asylum seeker? What was so it? How did he come to the U.S.? Tell us part of that story. Yes. So he actually was not uh, a refugee to the U.S., but he met my mother in the Middle East. So my father was born in Iraq uh, and then lost his country as a boy, as I'm probably many of you listening can appreciate, right? Um, and he was the wrong faith. And he was no longer, you know, his uh, members of his religion were no longer wanted in the country. And it really created, I think for him, a schism that never healed. It was a rift that never healed, right? It was, it was a sort of a before and after. And he never, I think, I'm sure many of you will appreciate this. It come from families that have stories, never talked about it. Wouldn't talk about it. Wouldn't really go there with me. And then he has this very American daughter, not just very American, but very PG County, very quick to talk about women's rights and girls' rights. And, and there's a moment in the book where my father actually turned to me after I'd been giving him a very hard time about, you know, women in his family cooking for everybody. And I, I really can't stand cooking. And I'm actually a very bad cook, so it's good that I don't like it. But um, I said to him, I was like, you know, why do they have to do it? Why can't men do it? And he looked at me and said, do you really think men and women are equal? And honestly, he didn't mean it in any mean or disrespectful way. It was truly mind boggling for him that I was putting that idea forward. And at the end, I will say I should give him full credit because decades later, uh, we were in South Florida and he was wearing a Harvard Business School dad t-shirt. And this woman came up to him and said, oh, how is your son doing at business school? And my father said, why does it have to be my son? It's my daughter. And we joked for ages until he passed, actually, that it had taken him decades, but he really came around when it came to the cause of, of women and girls. So yes, uh, it, this, it was really, um, this is, I, I did feel very connected to him. And part of the dedication uh, to him is for that reason. 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm sure having having a strong woman as a as a daughter was no small part in that that journey for him, um, as, as it is I'm sure for the the fathers and and probably also the mothers for for the woman in your book women in your yes, books. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, we're coming to our end here. We like to close the Reaganism podcast with our lightning round, asking our guests to reflect on their their favorite Ronald Reagan uh, speech or quote. Do you have anything to share with our listeners today? I, I do. And actually, this is one that really resonated with this book, with Daughters of Kobani, which is from uh, the joint session of Irish National Parliament in June of 1984. And I'm going to read this so I don't uh, mm -hmm. misremember. Um, when he talks about freedom is the flagship of the future and the flash fire of the future. Its spark ignites the deepest and noblest aspirations of the human soul. And this is the sentence that really uh, stuck with me, which is history is moving in the direction of self-government and the human dignity that it institutionalizes and the future belongs to the free. Well, then I think it's safe to say that the, the future certainly belongs to the daughters of Kobani. Thank you for telling their story. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you for having me right